Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be asking, how good are you at managing nutrition and fluid on the ward? But first, we held a roundtable at the BMJ recently, hosted by Donald McCauley, BMJ's primary care editor, and featuring a panel made up of doctors on the ground, leaders, educationalists and health systems experts. The full recording of the roundtable is also available on the BMJ's podcast page, but at an hour and a half, we thought it'd be best to give you a few highlights to whet your appetite. Firstly, Claire Girarda, Chair of the RCGP, and Judith Smith, Policy Director at the Nuffield Trust, lamented the lot of GPs. My poor profession. My poor, poor profession. I would challenge anybody to deliver the sort of care, the complexity of care, for £65 to £80 per patient per year, and to continue to do that in an evidence-based manner. Of course there's variability, but I think we have to start moving on from that. And actually, number one, as uh, Helen is saying, understand the variability, but actually move on. And where I'm at from the Royal College of GPs is we have, we have put a, a gauntlet down, and we've said, if we have more GPs spending longer with their patients and their communities, with longer training, then the GP of tomorrow is the solution for the NHS. And we will do things differently. We will build on what we've already done, but we will do things differently. We may even take back, for example, out-of-hours care. We will work in federations of practices. We will embrace telecare, telehealth. But I get so fed up, in particular, dare I say, around some of the think tanks, which all they will do is beat my poor profession for a tenth of the cost of a day in hospital, my profession provide unlimited care to their patients. My elderly patients consult on average 20 times per year for 65 to 75 pounds per patient per year. Judith, what do you think? Are you a think tank? Is Claire getting the due? <laughs> well, so yeah, well, yes, uh, I, I guess it, it, we, we are, a, are a think tank. I think what I was saying was, um, um, I think I was sharing the analysis in that um, I feel that it um, that where where general practice is at the moment, um, I, as I said, the needs have changed. We've got much more uh, complexity of need presenting itself, and as Claire was saying, people coming back time and time again. And the sense I get that you know that because we largely speaking still offer the sort of the ten minute consultation that that's that's clearly not some people need much longer consultations and we've we've got to get much smarter about how first of all we use the resource that we've got now the question about how much extra we need is a, is, is perhaps another one but also 10,000 more GPs right. to stand still my sense is that uh, practices uh, GPs and their teams are feeling quite beleaguered in lots of cases I mean what here's that it's not working for them economically but also it's not working in terms of job satisfaction and it's uh, it's a not unusual situation to meet a GP such as Helen, uh, who's opted to work as a locum. Now, while there can be some great things about that, it saddens me to some extent that removes that close association of the GP with their population and their practice. And I'm back to where I started there in terms of I think that's our real potential and strength of, uh, of general practice. So for me, it's really thinking differently about how we work with what we've got. So that's what we've got within primary care, but of course it then takes us into how we work differently with community services, with social care, and indeed the hospital sector. Later, Nav Channa, postgraduate dean of GP education at the London Deanery, 
spoke about what he thinks makes great general practice. Reflect again on what you really think is good general practice and what are the barriers Okay, I mean, if I could just start that by a sort of uh, a bit of work that we've done in my own practice. Um, I, I went to a design design council event where I where I heard this term mojos, moments of joy, moments of sorrow that, that patients describe when they when they connect with their uh, with their practice. Uh, and and I went back to my practice. So let's just apply this kind of methodology on our own practice and see what happens. And actually, what patients are saying is that the the moments of joy are when they actually meet up with a with a with a doctor they trust who actually listens to what they're saying and actually addresses their health issues and and works in partnership with them to solve the problem that's great and you know brilliant that's exactly what good journalism is all about but the moment of sorrow are all those bits in the system that block those patients getting to that encounter so there's you know waiting to get an appointment waiting to get on the phone waiting to get your prescription sorted and and i i can take responsibility for this because i'm talking about my practice here we've got quite a few of those barriers in place uh, for for our patients to access those 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 very brief encounters which which mean a, a great deal to them so this goes back to something judith was saying i think the model that we've got uh, and you know and you know it's still very much doctor-led it's it's based on you know quite an old 1983 type um, primary care act where, where where we still have quite a lot of patients having transactions with doctors and it's quite a sort of uh, spluttering journey for them to, to get to where they need to be and I think we really do need to redesign that we don't want to lose we do not need to lose the we don't okay we do not need to lose the core values of generalist high quality care that, that Claire and others have alluded to but we just need to think about how we enable that those moments of joy to be heightened through through the system. Much of the discussion was wide-ranging and covered a great deal of what it takes to make excellent primary care. But a big chunk centred on the future. Let's think about the future. I mean, uh, Nav, you mentioned premises and workforce, and Judith, you mentioned uh, um, uh, elective care as being priorities. Helen, you mentioned mental health, and uh, overall, uh, Nav, you mentioned about looking for at the population. So let's think a little bit about the future. What do we think the future of general practice is going to look like? So let, let's go to Claire first. What, what do you see as the redesign? What design would, what, how would you see general practice in the future? Uh, well, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, we've been thinking about this a lot and we have a paper coming out called the 2022 Vision for General Practice. I think the future of general practice will still have to make sure that the, we build on what works, Donal. We have to build on a registered list delivering first contact care to patients across the physical, psychological and social domains. And I think we absolutely have to do that. But I think the future, if we fast forward, I think we will be working as groups of practices, as federations, within with many more community-based staff. Uh, I talk, talk about federations being uh, provider organisations, but with some commissioning role as well, with possibly hypothecated budgets. I think we will be delivering care in a different way. I think we will be much more in terms of integrated case management for our high-risk populations, spending a lot longer with, with a smaller group of patients while still doing first contact care, but in a different way. So we'll be leading integrated teams. I also think we'll be using much more of e-health. I think the patient of the future will be able to engage with their GP practice remotely from registration to treatment and discharge through uh, electronic prescribing and, and electronic referrals. And I think the patient of the future, we will be looking at health literacy and actually making sure that the patient of the future understands much more how to have a, a relationship, an equal relationship with their GP. And I think there'll be all sorts of things on the periphery that will be different. Where I think some of the differences may also be, I think we'll be looking at much more hospital doctors in 
this primary care federation not with them acting as sort of consultants to the, the senior registrar GP, but in a much more equal way, with a hospital consultant, the, the generalist physician, the generalist psychiatrist, the generalist paediatrician within that organisation. Can I just stop you there for a moment, Claire, before you move on to this yes. integrated care and to talk a little about, about some of the things you mentioned in terms of federations. This is a tricky question. Is the day of the independent contractor over? Are we talking about large business conglomerates? Are we talking about big private groups taking over general practice? How do you feel about that? I think we're looking at different models, Donal. I think we need to look at pharmacy and where pharmacy's at. Pharmacy has a mix of large conglomerates, large uh, uh, private providers employing uh, salaried pharmacists and still your independent providers. And I think we're looking at different solutions. There's no problem with foundation trusts employing GPs, but it is not the only model. I'm going to come to Judith now. Judith, the day of the GP cottage industry over? Um, I'm not sure. I don't think general practice is a cottage industry at the moment, actually. So I think think it's already actually a mix of models. And I think what we we need to do uh, more carefully and more thoughtfully is look at the kind of models of general practice we've got, both in this country and to some extent internationally as well, because... One of the great strengths of general practice is its ability to innovate and to spot opportunities. And it doesn't tend to go around asking for permission. <laughs> it tends to sort of get on and do and wait and, uh, and, and hope it'll get forgiveness if, if that's needed. I, I think we've got to make sure that the models of primary care and general practice we've got, that they work for patients, but also that they work for the, the practitioners, for the professionals, because, you know, the, the general practice workforce has changed. And um, Claire will correct, is it about half of GPs are in a sort of salaried or sessional roles now? Something about that, more in London. Yeah, so the point being, you know, in a sense, the independent contractor model arguably is is evolving and has, has, ch- has changed anyway. We need some of the thinking and research, actually, to support what's actually happening on the ground and the, the innovation that's that's coming forward. Helen, this, this, this picture of general practice in the future is so different to the picture that you and I learned in Devon and worked with in Devon, the whole primary continuing care based around small practices. Gosh, this is a brave new world. Uh, Yeah, I don't know that it is that different to the reality now. And I think that the continuity of care is something that we all enjoy, and that's why we want to be in general practice. But most of my partners, when I was a partner, didn't want a thing to do with the business side of the the practice and let me carry on running it because they trusted me to do it to the best of my ability. And they then could concentrate on seeing patients, and that's what they wanted to do. I think the difficulty here is going to be not losing our ability to innovate and do what we needed to do. And we do not want to become like the learned helplessness of quite a lot of consultants in secondary care, where they can't do that because the managers say no, even if they think it's better for patient care. Whereas in general practice, we will do what we want to do. And we will give our phone numbers to the patients if that's you know what we need to do. And we do do it. And the patients don't abuse it. They don't ring every two minutes. you know. But that's how we want to run our services. So I think that... You know, there, it's it's already not quite the model that we grew up with when we were younger, anyway. Um, but I don't. I think every well, you sort of shrink away from the idea of it becoming a corporate body that takes over and manages us. I don't fancy that. And out of hours care is an important place in which primary care can engage with their patients and innovate. I think the GP of the future 
will be providing out-of-hours again. I think it will be providing personalised out-of-hours within a group organisation where not to everybody, not personalised to everybody, but those with end-of-life care, those with complex needs, and those of our patients that we know ring the hospital 70, 80 times a year and we need to be case-managing them. This isn't about, as when I came into general practice, going out in my pyjamas and doing all night, but it is a different model of general practice. But again, it's predicated... And you're right, Donal and, and, and Judith, we have to involve the public because the problem about general practice is we just get negative news. The Daily Mail is the, is the great place for telling us how bad we are and how rich we are. We want to do a good job. We want to provide continuity in and out of hours, but we cannot provide it out of hours at the moment, not with the current workforce. Given increase in workforce, of course we will find solutions and we're already. I left general practice, I didn't leave, I'm in general practice, but before the last contract, I think it was the 2004, I was loose track, we were just about to provide 24-hour care to our population of 50,000, but then we opted out of general, out of out of hours and it all changed. But most of general practice was at that position of providing personalised out of hours care across a 50,000 population, joining up with their neighbouring practices. And I think that's the future, named lead, etc., etc., etc. The full version of that roundtable is now available on bmj.com. Now, in light of the Francis report, how can senior doctors be more involved in the non-medical aspects of care of their patients? An analysis on bmj.com this week examines the problem of nutrition and fluid balance in hospitalised patients. Helen MacDonald, a junior doctor and associate editor here at the BMJ, talks to Richard Leach, clinical director of Guy's and St Thomas's in London, about how she can make a difference on the ward and impress the importance of this on her consultants. So we're now do- joined by Dr Richard Leach to talk about his analysis paper on um, food and hydration in hospital. So this is a really basic need and a very obvious and important point to address in terms of humane care, but also in terms of clinical outcomes. What do you think's going wrong? I think there are two important aspects in this. Firstly, doctors and nurses are incredibly busy. Mm. And I think what happens is that these two very fundamental and simple aspects of care get forgotten. I don't think doctors mean to forget it. I think they've forgotten how important they are. Both nutrition and hydration has fallen off the list of core competencies that all physicians require, both in hospital and outside hospital. I was surprised to find that there's quite clear guidance about what doctors and nurses should be doing when people are coming into hospital produced by NICE, particularly for nutrition. Tell us about what these say and what what we should be doing. Well, they're very simple. For example, when somebody is seen for the first time, perhaps they ought to be weighed. We should be assessing what their nutritional status is at the point of contact. Now, we do it in hospital, and we are extremely good at doing it. Across the country now, we can show that nutrition screening has improved really considerably. But when we've got the information... We very rarely act on it. And it's very interesting. Um, If you look at ward rounds that are occurring in hospitals, we concentrate on all the medical, the the more specialist medical inputs, but very infrequently do people look at nutrition. And to be fair, we're not very good at hydration either. 
And when I say hydration, I mean oral hydration or intravenous hydration. So the NICE guidelines and the downstream work from that is just one of a whole range of initiatives and guidelines and standards that have been developed. And you write in your article that one of the problems is that there's been a huge proliferation of instructions and we're almost in some state of inertia because we're overwhelmed with the number of options and approaches we might take. How can we pull that together and move forward? Do you well, think? you're right. Since 2000, there have been 20 initiatives mm. and 20 different sets of guidelines. There isn't a single simple set of guidelines. I think NICE have tried to address that, and I genuinely believe that actually we should follow the NICE guidelines and try and institute and measure ourselves against those guidelines because they are fairly simple and straightforward. Finally, I wanted us to just try and get really granular here because I suppose most of our listeners are predominantly clinical um, and broadly you might divide those into junior and senior doctors. So if you were to tailor what you would like a junior doctor to go away and do on the wards, what do you think the most important thing they they should be doing is? Well, I think, first of all, they, for a junior doctor, they need some basic education. If we're looking at nutrition, I think there are very few of those junior doctors who will have ever have looked at the NICE guidelines on nutrition. And indeed, I suspect many of them have got relatively little education in their medical training on nutrition. It will have come in a piecemeal form, and it's probably all, all there, but it's never been put into an organised structure that is useful at a practical level on the wards. I think that's even more true of hydration, mm -hmm. and in particular, intravenous fluids where we know that junior doctors are very poorly prepared. If you look at the curriculae at medical schools, they do incorporate all the relevant information. But that what do you see is relevant? Well, for example, what is the normal daily loss of sodium in a human, which is around 75 to 150 millimoles of sodium a day, which is what is... Uh, a normal bag of saline contains 150, 154 millimoles of sodium chloride. Now, unless you know what's in the bag of fluid you're giving to your patient, you can't tailor the therapy they're getting. We know that too much sodium chloride, particularly in an ill person, can have detrimental effects. But our junior doctors, we know from audit studies that less than 50% of them know the amount of sodium in a bag of normal saline. So how on, how on earth can they make a decision on how to provide appropriate rehydration in a potentially very poorly patient unless they have the basic information? So I think there is some basic information that you have to have. And it, it's very simple to educate people, and it's amazing the effect that simple education has on their prescribing habits. So I think, think we've got a long way to go. The difficulty is, and I, I, I hate to be slightly controversial here, but from the audit data we have, some of our consultants are not terribly good ah. on fluid See, management in hospital. I was going to say, hospital. where are they learning and, their fluid management from? And exactly. <laughs> your, many of our specialists are world experts in their field and incredibly effective cardiologists and um, hematologists, but when you ask them about fluid management, their core competencies for 
that general medical task are probably much weaker and they're then assessed le well, less well throughout our medical training that we've forgotten about them and I think we need to go back and focus on some of those core competencies in general medicine and it's not just nutrition and hydration it's antibiotic stewardship thromboprophylaxis and many other aspects of general medicine for, for the senior doctors here, though, there's there's also an issue of leadership, isn't there, of making this an important part of their ward round? Absolutely. And I, I, this is unpublished data, but I have quite a lot of data where we've watched ward rounds and seen many patients are on intravenous fluids on the wards. But how often does a consultant stop and check that the fluid prescription is appropriate for the patient. If the junior doctor doesn't see that their seniors are interested in this, why are they going to take it seriously? And more importantly, they'll never learn from mistakes because nobody will ever correct the mistakes. Finally, Dr Leach, I suppose we can't, in this week where the Francis report has come out, not touch on the issues that cross between this topic that you've raised and the Francis report. What what do you think the crossover and lessons to be learnt are? I think, I think that we have to concentrate on the basics. Reading the Francis report is a very distressing report. To read it is, is quite sad for the healthcare services as a whole. But I think what it tells us that simply talking to patients, kindness, respecting their dignity, and the simple things like nutrition, um, hydration, helping them get to the toilet, very basic things, making sure that they're safe, that they're protected from unnecessary infections, unnecessary pressure sores related to their poor nutrition, that sort of aspect. We, we have become very focused on our specialties. In, in as a medical group and I think we need to go back to some of the basics and try and concentrate a little more on those and make sure that we're delivering the simple things first. They're cost effective, we know they're cost effective and we know they're really effective. That seems a very good place to stop. Thank you very much. Thank you. Helen MacDonald and Richard Leach there. And that article is now available on bmj.com. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then.